Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, friends. Welcome to the special edition of the Tennis and Bagels podcast. Uh, joining me today, we have a special guest, a tennis writer, uh, writes for tennis.com. We've had him many times before on the on the podcast. It's such a pleasure to recap the end of the end of all the majors with him. Uh, he's uh, written the Pete Sampras Greatness Revisited, which is his latest book. You should check that out um, on Amazon, and you can follow all of his work on tennis.com. Please welcome Steve Flink. Steve, how are you? Uh, how are you doing today? Quite a quite a month of tennis we've had, and really excited to do this recap with you. Yeah, glad to be back with you again, Vanch. It was great, great fortnight over there. I mean, remarkable how things shifted from the Djokovic saga, which was so sad for everybody, Novak included, to having such a compelling tournament and such a such an improbable ending. So I, I think we we really uh, a lot a lot changed across two weeks. For sure, yeah. Especially the way it started, it was good. It was nice to see sort of the tennis takeover um, at, at the end. And, uh, you know, if we just stick to what's fresh in our mind, uh, which is obviously the men's final, to me, it was one of the most unbelievable, you know, unexpected, you use the word improbable, uh, run ever to a major title. I mean, he, here Nadal is 35 and a half years old. He had foot surgery in September. You know, he had problems. He's had problems on the foot ever since the first lockdown. And of course, on top of that, he got COVID at the end of December and you know what a way to finish the finish off this this tournament for him first ever two sets of love comeback since 2007 Wimbledon and you know it just to me it just seems feels so deserved because in a way it's kind of like it's kind of like destiny that for, for Rafa to win it in the fashion that he did especially after all the disappointment he sort of had here uh, since 2009. Yeah I couldn't agree more I think that's an excellent assessment I, I thought a lot about that you, you so many things had to fall into place and that's why you're characterization of destiny really makes sense because you think about it, Bancha, all the things that you mentioned with the foot and the surgery and COVID and not even sure if, uh, about a month before whether he's even to come play this tournament, then surely not really believing when he got over there, he just was hoping that he could get his teeth into the tournament and be back competing again. And I don't think it would have been shattered had he, gone to the quarters and lost there. It would have been that kind of a tournament. He could have accepted it and moved on. But look what happened. I mean, first of all, the Djokovic being deported. So Djokovic was on his half of the draw. He's gone. That uh, that created a void on that half of the draw. Secondly, I was sure that he would meet Zarev in the quarters, given the way Zarev had played all through post-Wimbledon to the end of last year, winning the Olympics, winning the year-end championships, very good U.S. Open, losing in five to Djokovic. Just a a stellar record for Zarev and very reliable. It all, I almost, I, I kind of thought he was going to win the tournament, frankly, going in. 
And then finally, and then also, then you throw on top of that Rafa's escape against Shapovalov on a day when he had heat stroke and when he was his stomach was really ailing. Out of nowhere, that stomach really got him, and the heat got him, which never happens. But in this particular day, it did, and somehow he managed to dance out of it in the fifth set on experience and guile and just good match playing know how. So you had all of those variables. And then he ends up playing a solid match against Berrettini in the semis and then the spectacular comeback in the final. That's why I say improbable. You, it, it's a script that would be very hard to write uh, going into the tournament. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, he's up against the uh, 20, 2021 U.S. Open champion, the best player on the hard, uh, on hard courts, very, uh, very, very near to Djokovic in that regard. And, you know, I, I really thought the first set, the way it, the way it sort of uh, turned out, I mean, he, Rafa really looked like he, he was in a bundle of sweat. I mean, the first four games in, and he just looked, he, he looked like a 35 year old. He just looked slow. And, you know, Medvedev, obviously he held for 2-1, but then Medvedev was really cruising through his own service games. And it, it looked bleak there for, for Nadal for a while. I mean, I really thought uh, after that second set, it, it, I was like, oh no, this could be, you know, flashback to sort of the 2019 final beatdown that, uh, you know, he had against Djokovic in the in the final there. And, yeah, yeah. let's back, well-described, Bunch. Let's go back, though, to the first set. You described it. To get to 2-1, he had a deuce game on his serve, and then he had to save a couple of break points in the third game. It was not exactly a, a morale booster. He was just sort of hanging on. Then over those last five games, he won five points. Right. He was obliterated in that first set. And you say he looked 35. I'd say, frankly, not to be unkind, because I'm a big Rafa admirer that he looked even older than that. And he also looked tight. He looked yeah. nervous, confused, and like, how am gonna how am I gonna impose myself in this match? And I agree with you. At that stage, and Medvedev is doing the fist pump at the end of the set, and you're saying, Wow, this could be this could be over in a hurry. And yes, the, it did call to mind the Novak. Of course, there's a big difference between Novak and his experience and you know, an all-time great it was in the habit of winning majors and who has haunted Rafa so many times on the hard courts over the course of their careers and Medvedev. But nonetheless, it's a big cushion to give someone as good as Medvedev to lose a 6-2 first set and know you got to win three of the next four. And you know that Medvedev Medvedev is the kind of guy that usually is pretty durable. So it was going to be a hard road ahead. But we saw the signs, Vanch, early in the second. That's what maybe surprised me as much as anything was that, yes, Medvedev eventually won the set. It was a breakdown, got the break back then broke back again when when Rafa served for the set at 5-3 and had that set point. And great effort from Medvedev and finally culminates with a, a recovery from 3-5 down in the tiebreak. I thought he played those four points really spectacularly to pull out the set. And, and then he kind of raised his arms to the crowd as if to tell, as if to say to them, you know, you may not want me to win, but I'm here and, and you're not going to stop me. And at that stage, you had to believe, even though Rafa had played so much better in the second, looked looked like a different player in many respects, that you, you would have thought, Ivanch, that that was harder to take than losing the set 6-3 and trying to start regrouping in the third. Put so much effort into it, 84 minutes, it was so hard fought. And in the end, he had nothing to show for it. Medvedev had fended him off, had played the big points better, and there he was with the two sets of love lead. And you just alluded to it in our opening, botch. Last time was Yuzhny in, in, at the 2007 Wimbledon. Rafa had never done this in a major final. And it, it's kind of surprising in a way, given the great fighter that he is, but he never had. And right. to do it to do it at 35 
And at 35, with poor preparation, yes, he won the ATP 250 event right there in Melbourne. I understand that. That helped to get three matches in. However, that was not a lot after all the absence. You know, if you look back and he didn't play after the French came back, he didn't play Wimbledon after the French played one match in the summer, lost to Lloyd Harris. Then he's gone. I mean, so, so much time. To, so to just have this one little warm up tournament to prepare you for a major and, and knowing he, he, he would be the first to admit, I think he wasn't in peak physical condition. So it was to me, it was maybe beyond improbable that he could recover from that kind of a deficit against someone like Medvedev that's going to work you so hard and keep you out there so long. And we saw that eventually it did go to five hours and 24 minutes. Now, how does a guy that, I mean, it's one thing 10 years ago to lose to Novak in a five hour, 53 minute epic on the same court, but here it is 25 versus 35, uh, how, how he could come up with the goods over those last three sets still astonishes me. Yeah. I mean, that that's one part of this match that, that just, uh, you know, I'm having a hard time explaining because obviously, I, I mean, just going back to those first two sets, I really felt like Medvedev was sort of playing the way he, the the perfect kind of a game plan. I mean, I mean, in the, in a sense, he really came out trying to physically outlast Nadal in a way that I, that you know, he, only someone like him is really kind of prepared to take on. And he was massaging the ball around the corner. He was getting into these lung busting exchanges. He was covering the court really well. Obviously, he was using that cross court backhand. Uh, hard to the Nadal forehand, opening up the backhand down the line, which he later went away with and he started hitting a bunch of drop shots, you know, as the match sort of progressed. I don't mean to interrupt you. Just let me do so briefly. That was was catastrophic to Medvedev. He is usually one of the clearest thinkers out there. One of the things everybody was saying about him after he lost to Rafa in the 2019 US Open final when he came from two sets down and nearly made the comeback himself before losing in five was that here was one of the most guileful, KG match players around the flexibility, the different game plans that he threw at Nadal, the the shifts in strategy and and tactics, and and here I think maybe because he was so uh, he was mentally fatigued and he was very beleaguered almost. He was upset by the crowd. He didn't like the fact that they were so pro Rafa and they seemed to be against him, and that was weighing on his mind. And perhaps that explains some of the shall we say, questionable thinking on his part. And you just alluded to me was one of the most important point uh, factors in the match, the overdone drop shot. Too many of them, too obvious at times. And Rafa's movement got better as the match went on. He was, he was reading those beautifully and getting onto them swiftly, getting up there swiftly and passing Medvedev and just not letting him get away with any even media, mediocre to pretty good drop shots were not going to be good enough. I didn't understand it because you said it well. I mean, when he was stepping in and nailing the cross court and then ste- and then hit some beautiful down the lines off that side, that's where he was doing damage to Rafa. And let me just add one more point, Vanch. And I've been thinking about this for days and I was trying to figure out why did Medvedev, the guy who serves that well, and it's no disrespect to Rafa, who's a great returner. But I, I felt like this holding was became a bigger and bigger issue for Daniel after the first set. And I, the only thing I can put my finger on is that he he did not use the wide serve and the deuce court enough. He loves going down the tee. That's his favorite. I get it. And he kills a lot of right-handers with that serve. That's not the right serve against Rafa. Yes, if it's perfectly located down the tee, maybe he'll get the ace. But Rafa, 
otherwise is going to get his racket on that ball and he's going to hit a deep down the middle return and Daniel had to work the point. I, I'm not quite sure why he didn't use the wide one more because at the very least he would have been in, in really good control of the point and a lot of the good wide serves would have been good enough in their own right to win the points. Do you, do you agree with that? I do. I do. I, I, I got that feeling that he started moving. He really started moving away from those wide serves. And, and that's what you have to do against a guy like Rafa who stands so far back behind the baseline right. with his deep return right. position, because he has such, he has such an, such an awesome ability to like loop those returns back. And then, yeah. then he can get on the baseline and he can start dictating with his forehand. And you know, that, right. that changes the, the momentum of the match. No, I, I agree. Like, and I would have thought that was a crucial, it would have been a crucial part of Daniel's game plan. You've seen it through the years. Roger always used that wide serve against Rafa in the deuce court. Novak uses it beautifully against Rafa. It's, it's, it's not that you can overdo that either. You've still got to move it around some, but he didn't use it nearly, nearly enough. And I think, I bet you Rafa was pleasantly surprised by that. Yeah. And the other thing that kind of surprised me, I mean, I, I know it's sort of different, different conditions and he's obviously not the most comfortable at doing it, but he does not like to come to the net on his own terms. I mean, I mean, he, I mean, unless it's on his own terms, like he is, he just looks so uncomfortable up there. I mean, when he, when he has to get up, get up there and Rafa's using the slice or he's coming in and he's trying to finish at the net, I feel like he's just so awkward and uh, uncomfortable and he just doesn't trust it. He'd, he'd much rather retreat back to the baseline and restart the point all, all over again. And then sometimes he, he sort of gets trapped in no man's land. And then, you know, and then it's trouble for him. And he does. He doesn't transition nearly as well as Rafa, nor does is his technique on the volley even close to as, as good as Rafa's. You're absolutely right. It's, it's an awkwardness. Now, sometimes he gets away with it because he, he does basically say to the guy, if you can hit a perfect topspin lob, fine, it's your point. But I'm, I'm crowding the net and I dare you to get the ball by me. And sometimes you, when you're that tight on the net, you don't have to be that great a volley or you, you can still put it away. And I think he relies on that too much, Vonch. And then at other times, with someone as someone as clever as Rafa and who passes so so well and can dip the ball at your feet, then that's where he gets exposed. And he was exposed. And there are other times too where he he doesn't knife the backhand volley cross court well enough, and Rafa made him pay for that too a couple of times. You know, and so Daniel, they have to revisit that. They've got to really examine that and work on that part of his game. I mean, you look at how Djokovic over the years, how much his volley improved the young Novak to the, to the Novak we've seen over the last 10 years, big difference. And Daniel's going to have to do the same thing. Uh, it, totally agree. Be, because Rafa fully exploited that, just exploited it to the hill. Completely. And, and even on some of the poor drop shots, I feel like he can sometimes get away with it if he follows that into the net and then is prepared to sort of lob to the next shot or, you know, finish off the point in, in, in that way. But yeah, it's, I totally agree. That's definitely one and, part of his game that needs improvement. And again, sorry to interrupt, but again, that calls to mind Novak. Right. Because Jim will often follow his drop shots into the net. And and granted, he's a little quicker. He, you know, obviously he's got more agility up around the net, but still it's a good play. And then you're forcing, you're taking away some of the other guy's options. Absolutely. And, uh, and you're right. Medvedev, no, these, there were some clear, there, there were some clear uh, fault, faults in his thinking. There were, there, there, were, there were clear problems in the way that he approached this match tactically. And Rafa, just the opposite. Right. Just the opposite. Rarely yeah. made the wrong tactical move. Totally agree. And the thing is, you can't give uh, a player like Nadal, so Nadal even a small window of hope. And, you know, he, he'll take that and he'll, he'll raise his level. And, and, you know, that's what happened at 2-3, love 40. 
obviously that was the turning point of this match. And, you know, I, on the, all these three break points, you know, Medvedev made all of his three returns. And, yeah. you know, he yeah. did He did get, you know, obviously there's that drop shot that he hit at 2-3, 30-40. And, you know, you could say he got a little bit tight. He got a bit passive on, the, on those occasions. But this is really when the match really started to shift. And then you started to no, notice that physical difference already late in the third set. You did. You did. You could see it. I couldn't agree more. I felt that even there was a slight weariness even seeping in toward the end of the second set. But Medvedev made that big push to get that set in his column and hoping that he was going to that was going to destroy Rafa's morale, which it clearly did not. And then you're right. It got more apparent in the latter stages of the third. And even though he put aside that disappointment bunch when he didn't break and yeah, you're right. He got all his returns back into play. He didn't play any of these points terribly. Uh, Rafa mm-hmm. did surprise him with the drop shot on the Love 40 point. And then right. before he knew that game was gone. I give Medvedev credit because so often we see somebody, you know, sort of uh, plague. They're, they're, they're still thinking about the missed opportunities. They lose their serve in the next game. He didn't do that. He did hold on for 4-3. But then those last three games of, the, of that third set went, were disappeared rather swiftly. And Rafa made a nice pass to break him for go up five four and yeah there was a different complexion to the match and you knew I mean Medvedev I think was worried by the start of the fourth because he could see this sort of revitalization in Rafa and that's why I think he made that comment after the match about Rafa kidding Rafa about did he do do you ever get tired right because Medvedev knew that he himself was getting a bit tired and uh, and yet he could see in Rafa there was this spark and this sparkle. And and that that worried him. That worried him. He wanted. He he knew he 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 was. It was like a boxer that should have knocked the guy out in the seventh or eighth round when he had the chance. Because once once Nadal withstood the the that yeah. You know, once he got his teeth into the match and grabbed that third set, you you it, you had a whole different feeling about the match. At least I did. Yeah, completely. Especially even. I mean. I mean. Even in the fourth set. I mean, he had chances to break back. There was that long. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. six. It took Nadal his seventh break chance to get right. to grab the right. break at two all, and then there was that yeah. four three. The point that always sticks out to me is that four three thirty forty point, where again he went for the drop shot, and it was just right. he had so right. much time on that ball, and he just uh, you know I, I didn't think that was the right shot to go for there. And then no, not at all. And he'd already had fifteen four. That was a big game. He needed to break back there because he, it, it, I think he really needed. Not that he wasn't going to have a chance in the fifth, but boy, he had to somehow try to hang on and scrape that four set out. And you're right. That was, again, bad shot selection and, and yeah. not not intelligent thinking on his part. And by, by that stage, Rafa really knew he could read the plot. He knew exactly what was coming. Yeah. And that was a very big game, very big game. And then Rafa suddenly were, suddenly were two sets all. But now, of course, let's why don't we uh, why don't we yeah. talk about fifth which was really spectacular absolutely yeah and in in the fifth set I mean one thing that definitely changed for me is of course this is some of the best tennis um, I mean Nadal was playing until 5-4 30 love but I really feel like um, you know even at 3-2 there was those three unreturned serves by Medvedev and each time Nadal went wide on the back wide uh, wide with the ad serve on the uh, on the ad side and you know and, and I noticed that I was looking at the stats and in the first four sets, Medvedev was making 80% of those returns. And suddenly that number dropped to around 60% in the, in the fifth set. And, you know, I, I just feel like at least one of those returns should have come back in play um, in that 3-2 game. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Uh, I think he was really, the, he was, 
I don't know whether it was weariness or, uh, you know, he, he wasn't reading it as well, but it was, I don't think it was that surprising. Rafa was going wide to his back in a lot. I did. I don't think there was anything yeah. about Nadal's patterns and maybe he was a bit more accurate with it. Had a, and he, and he was serving a, a good sure. speed. You're right. Some more of those returns with, with, Mebedev's wonderful reach at six six. There's no doubt more of those should have should have come back, and he had to work them harder there. But then, right. let's go to the latter stages. Suddenly, yep. he got sort of a gift because Rafa surged his way to five four thirty love. I mean, you don't think he's going to lose serve from from thirty love, and then a little surprising, he missed that looped running cross court forehand. Not a, not a difficult, it's a shot that he should keep in play, that he wasn't trying to hit hard. He was just trying to get it back fairly deep and he hit it long. Then the double fall. Then Medvedev played one good point at 30 all and then Rafa misses a pretty routine cross court back and it was not a good game from him. And what I loved about his comments afterwards was the admission, Vanj, the admission from Rafa that he his mind was flashing to 2012 and 2017 because... Right. Here are two matches that it's 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 remarkable that he wasn't able to win one of the two at least. But in 2012 against Novak, 4-2, 30-15 in the fifth, he has the break. That's such a big game when you're serving out ahead, when you're starting serving in the final set as he did that day. So at 30-15, he had a backhand pass up the line that he missed wide, and Djokovic was in bad shape on the other side of the court. No way could he cover it. Rafa played it too fine, got broken, eventually lost the, the match. And then, of course, with Roger 3-1 in the fifth in 2017, you thought he had him there. Roger had come back from a six-month absence with his knee surgery, and then Roger never lost another game, won five in a row. So clearly, Rafa remembered those missed opportunities and lamented them. And I think in a strange way, it was probably a good thing. I think he may be stepping outside of himself and kind of realizing that, that right. and, and so, okay, it happened then. Maybe it's going to happen now, but it's not going to happen happen with with me giving it away I, i'm I, i'm not going to give him any more help and, he and managed, you could see by his reaction when he lost that game i mean he, there was there was sort of a grin and a smile yeah to it, like right like you which is he was thinking about it yeah and very unusual for rafa but i think at that stage you know he was so philosophical about it and it's in a strange way it benefited him it benefited benefited him uh immeasurably because suddenly he breaks my back now again it did show some of the vulnerability of Medvedev at five all. He gets to 30-15. We get another drop shot. It wasn't a terrible drop. It was a little lower than some of the other ones, but Rafa was onto that one. Hit a beautiful angle back in cross court and and eventually broke him after Medvedev saved a few break points. It was a deuce game. It was a tough game. Yeah. But one and you have to wonder about Medvedev. If you've been granted this kind of a reprieve from Rafa and now you're serving at five on the fifth, you've got to at least hold on and get yourself to a final set tiebreak, which would have been a just a, a, a such a fitting way to end the match if we could have had that, you know, right. with the 10 point tiebreak. Didn't happen. And again, Rafa with a couple of those nice loop returns. Daniel had served an ace for 30 15, and then Rafa got a lot of returns back after that. But again, I don't think that uh, Daniel's location or I don't think that was his best serving uh, the rest of that yeah. game. And once Rafa had that play on the returns, you felt like he was the sturdier guy from the backcourt. Absolutely. And especially the last return that Nadal made on break point to grab uh, the break. I thought that was right. an excellent return. It was really deep. It was and- down the middle. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And then, of course, that's that's where Daniel has too much time to think. It makes me think yeah. of 
that Djokovic on set point in the first set of last year's final, he had just blocked the return deep down the line, and Daniel had a high forehand and bungled. Similar to that in the sense that the guy, he doesn't want to be thinking like that. He wants to be reacting. He's better when he's reacting to more speed. And that, yeah. but, but that was, that was it, another stunning development. I mean, if you look at those two games, how can Rafa lose serve from 30 love serving for the match? How can Daniel not hold it five all? But it was that kind of a match. Yes, they were both vulnerable. And so we don't, we wouldn't call this an, an epic. I don't put it in the epic category. And I think, of all of Rafa's majors, it's the most gratifying and and the, the, clearly the most the greatest comeback of his career, given the circumstances and the importance of the match. But I don't think he's going to put that down there as one of his great performances. It just was very gritty. How, did you yeah. feel that way? Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it an epic either. Uh, yeah. I, I felt like it was one of the most unexpected and un- unbelievable yeah. matches, but uh, definitely wouldn't put it in the in the category of the 2012 final or the you know. Uh, to some of the other Djokovic Nadal matches. Or... But it's interesting, Vance. No, I'm glad you agree. It's just interesting to me, though. Let's go back to 2012 for a second. Okay, so Novak had had that golden 2011 season yeah. uh, where he didn't lose a match, all the 41 matches in a row over the course of the season before losing to Federer at the French, won the other three majors, which just a fantastic season. And yet Rafa, and, and Rafa lost to him uh, you know, he'd lost to him in the Wimbledon and U.S. Open finals that year. And, uh, you know, four setters, but fairly decisive. And and yet Rafa squeezed out the third set of the Open final. I remember him saying when he, after Australia that just winning that set felt so good. Right. He could have straight and he won a really hard fought third set before going down decisively in the fourth. And he had that positive attitude. And yet he still wasn't quite sure if he could do it. And in the end, the doubts really did hurt him maybe down the stretch. And Novak was coming off one of his greatest seasons. So it kind of made sense what happened. And then 2017, a little different because you had to figure he would finish off Roger from there. But you can feel the tension on those occasions. You can feel how much he wanted it and and didn't necessarily expect it. But his desire and his and his his motivation could not have been higher. And here this time, it was all such a lark. I think a part of him was in the final, was thrilled to be there, was going to try. And he actually enjoyed playing that match. Gets back to what we were saying earlier, the enjoyment he found in just being out there competing and giving himself a chance in the end helped pull him through because he wasn't wasn't in the mood to be too hard on himself or to beat himself up if he happened to lose after all that had happened to him over the second half of last year. And, and yeah. And and also, you know, he, he he sort of confirmed that the last two weeks and sort of in his philosophy, the way he sort of views the major record, because it's it's not so much about surpassing Djokovic and Federer and, you know, about, I don't even get the impression that it was more about 21. I think it was just about purely being back on the court, being healthy again, you know, being in a position to be able to vie for these these kind of trophies and and have the, have, just have the chance again, really, because it's... Yeah, um, I- I think you're right. I understand what you're saying, and I understand what he was saying. I think he mm-hmm. compartmentalizes because I, I honestly think, in the back of his mind, he tries to drive it out of there and give it as little thought as possible. He clearly wanted to move it. How could you not? After you spent your whole career, he spent his whole career trailing Roger, and he finally caught caught Roger right. at the 2020 uh, French, and then hadn't won one since. And Novak had caught both of them. So here's a chance to move out in front again with the French coming up. So I do believe that meant a lot. To, it means more to him 
much more to him than he's saying, but he's able to focus more on the enjoyment part that you're talking about. Make that paramount in his mind and say, okay, the results will take the result will take care of itself, and I'll worry later about the record. But I do believe he takes great pride, and you and you have to at their at their level. How could you not when you spent your career setting these records, breaking these records? But you're right; he put the emphasis on the the joy of competing. Yeah, that that's spot on. That's that's a really good way of putting it. And and you know, obviously, this leads to the natural question, which is you know the legacy, the conversation between the big three. Really, it's been sort of the big two since uh, 2018, right. 2019 now, but. Right, but, right. But nonetheless, I mean, you look at Djokovic and you look at look at Nadal now, and you know they each have the double career Grand Slam. They're each two and four at their respective uh, worst major, like in finals. And what's what's kind of interesting is that like Nadal is twenty one and eight in major finals, and Djokovic is twenty and eleven. But uh, you know, and and if you but take out Vance better as well, that's the interesting thing that both Roger and Novak twenty and eleven, right. they played two more finals, but they have one. One less title, which is fascinating. Yeah. It shows you how that, I think in, in fairness to Roger and Novak, they don't have as great as Novak is on hard courts and as great as Roger is on grass. There's nothing like Rafa on clay. So True. Rafa 13 and 0 at the French open in finals and eight and eight elsewhere. So that's not a knock on him, by the way. It's just that he's never, and it, it's, it's great quality because you still can have a bad day somewhere along the line. You could lose a couple of those finals. And he didn't. He yeah. didn't. So uh, you're right. It, that's that's an interesting part. And I think it's important, by the way. I think your record in major finals, you know, Pete Sampras being 14 and four. I think those stats are important because it shows your greatness as a big match player. Mm-hmm. And who knows how it turns out eventually. Maybe no wins his next three major finals if he played. We're never mm-hmm. going to know. It's going to take time to know that. But boy, I admire Rafa especially given that this was, you know, what you alluded to. Now he's got at least two of every major. He's tied Novak in that department. And it's something Roger has not been able to do. And I didn't think it was possible anymore. I thought that Rafa had lost his chances there in 12. And then also in 14, when he lost to Stan Wawrinka, when he hurt his back in the warm-up and lost that final in four sets. And then another final in Novak where he got obliterated in 19. So I thought once he lost that match to Novak three years ago in the finals, I thought that was probably his last chance to to get the career set of two. But boy, did he prove me wrong. Yeah, he, he proved everyone wrong here with this with this win. I mean, even I remember Mark Petchy saying on uh, on commentary, like, surely this is a decisive point. And that was a 2-3 love 40. And you can't blame him because I was thinking exactly the same. And then Patrick McEnroe said something very similar. He said, this is all but over. And, and it, he spoke for all of us. I mean, we all know, and let's face it, if, Medvedev breaks there, then that probably was going to be correct. I mean, you never know with Rafa. Maybe he breaks right back, but unlikely at that stage. So, right now, I think my view of this, Vanch, looking at these guys, the best clutch competitor I've ever seen is Djokovic. The best day in, day out, everyday competitor, every tournament, every moment is Nadal. Yeah. Uh, I just feel like. Never lets his guard down, and he he he. Where he's different from Novak, he's less emotional as a competitor. No, Novak has days. There, there are times when his, where he's just for whatever the reasons, you know, he's been subpar mentally, or his or his his emotions have spilled over and gotten the best of him. Something like the U.S. Open incident that cost him the the very unlucky default there, or smacking a ball. That kind of thing doesn't happen to Nadal. So, and and I think 
that quality is what won him this tournament. Uh, yeah. you know, the, his equanimity as a competitor is, is amazes me. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And this was also the most number of sets Nadal has ever lost in, in route to the title. I mean, do you, do you remember like uh, what the second most was? I mean, he lost six here. So yeah, no, remind me. Actually, I, I, I haven't. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, so it was the 2010 Wimbledon. He ended up losing five sets, and that was yeah. the most he lost up until that point, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, yeah, it is, and that was his second title. And you know, obviously, he finished that tournament really strong. We destroyed Burdich in the wind in the final, but yeah, along the way there were some real struggles. I do remember those, and and the fact is that uh, this one. The one I think that really, the one that amazes me the most here is Shapovalov. I didn't quite understand. Shapovalov is a, is a mystery to me. He, yeah. he, he, he caught an off-form Zarev and beat him in straight sets. And Sasha had 5-3 in the second set and didn't close it out. And that was his only real chance. And Dennis played a solid match. And then he comes out against Rafa. And I thought didn't play a very smart the first two sets and didn't put enough returns into play. And Rafa served really well and got his one break a set and looked like he had them. And then the problems with the stomach and the heat. And, mm-hmm. and so was able to win those third and fourth sets. And you saw how wobbly Rafa was in the fourth. And then we saw Dennis complain because Rafa took the medical timeout mm-hmm. and bathroom break, consumed about six and a half minutes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that for Shapovalov to complain later about Rafa and the and the rules and the time and I I don't like it when young players like that don't look themselves in the mirror and say what did I do wrong because the fact was he had a break point in the first game of the fifth and Rafa served an ace and then Dennis just really botched the second game very badly on his own serve with a stream of errors then he had two more break points in the third game and on one of them he didn't put a return back that he clearly should have made and. The other, he made an unforced error off his back end. So I just think, you know, and then Rafa was very poised, was very mature and just tried to keep the ball in play in that fifth. He didn't try to do too much because he could see that Dennis was self-destructing and he served really well. So all credit to Rafa. I thought that from Shapovalov's end was a golden missed opportunity because you have a player that's clearly still not right. And Rafa admitted that he still wasn't feeling great in the fifth set. He still wasn't feeling great. He, uh, you know, it was hard to tell if he maybe had a little resurgence of energy, but he said he kind of shook his head when he did the interview afterwards. And you could tell he still hadn't been, he, he still felt very vulnerable in the fifth. So that, that was, that was surprising to me. I'm also sorry we didn't get to see Zara play Rafa. I mean, not to say that I wanted to see Zara play Rafa on a day when Rafa might not have been up to it because of the heat stroke and the, and, and, the stomach, but I, I was hoping we would see a really classic quarterfinal between the two. And of course we never got it. Yeah. Uh, you know, those are good points and definitely Shapovalov. I felt like his youth and inexperience kind of showed in that moment because, you know, here he was complaining about the amount of time that all was taking in between points and ESPN showed that graphic. And uh, I think yeah. it was at the end of the fourth set and he was taking 28 right. seconds in between points and exactly. the was taking 31. Exactly. So exactly. I right. noticed, I noticed that too. Absolutely. Right. And uh, again, that's just too much moaning and groaning to, for my liking. And, and, and what I also didn't like about it, by the way, is Raph is a gentleman and he called Shapovalov up to the net because he was trying to understand what was going on with Dennis there in the early stages when he was giving Car- Carlos the umpire so much grief. Yeah. And, and it looked to me like Dennis tried to laugh it off with Raph. I, I really think 
if he had this beef and he felt Rafa was taking too much time, it, 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 and, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know exactly what was said, but I don't think he. It, it wasn't. Didn't appear that he ever said to him, Rafa. My gripe is, I honestly think you're taking too much time. That's what's upsetting me. I don't mean it personally, but I believe that that the rules should be applied. And I think he's letting you going over. Let you. He's let you go over that 25 second rule too many times. That's that's what I'm complaining about. But it didn't appear that he did that, and I didn't like that either. I thought, okay. Plus, calling mm-hmm. calling Carlos corrupt was right. was inexcusable to me and then saying all of you are corrupt like it was just such, yeah. A, yeah. such a bad look you know no it's too bad because he's got all this exuberance i remember he played that semi against Djokovic at wimbledon Djokovic went up to him in the locker room afterwards to sort of half console him and half encourage him for the future and we all know what a great shot maker he is but right. i i i'm worried about some of the conduct and i didn't like all the griping here right. uh, i mean it just comes off to me like sour grapes and, and al- alibis when, you know, you had a guy who was, who was 35 years old on the other side of the net who's not feeling like himself, unusual ailment for Nadal, and he clearly was suffering. So it's up to you to go out and get the job done. And he didn't give Rafa much credit either. I didn't like that either. The whole, the whole thing was very unfortunate. He had an opportunity. Rafa took it away from him. But uh, just own up to the fact that you, Dennis, need to grow up and you need to become a better match player and handle those circumstances better in the future. But and it was all everybody's fault. It was the umpire's fault. It was Rafa's fault. Right. Not him. I, I hope he looks inward and, you know, looks at himself and, you know, analyzes and takes the time because, you know, this has happened to him before. I remember in 2020 US Open, he was playing against Karenia Busta in the covers yeah. and he had won the fourth set, sixth love. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, he was under the impression that his opponent is sort of, uh, you know, not, not well. And he's, and sort of he had him in the fifth set. And, you know, that at that point, that was his first ever, like, five-setter in that kind of a stage. Right, and, right. And, you know, I felt like same thing, same thing sort of happened here in the sense he, he, he really didn't capitalize in, in his opportunities in the beginning of the fifth set. And that was where he had, that's, that's, where, we, that's where he had Nadal. And that was his, his opportunity. And he lost that match because of his tennis and in between his head, not because of Nadal's um, uh, gamesmanship is what, no, no, what he was going for. definitely not. And, and, you know, yes. Okay. He claimed that he lost the momentum because Rafa took all that time. No, it's, it's up to him to maintain the momentum and to, to, to mm-hmm. take advantage of the opportunities. He reminds me a bit of Andy Murray in all the venting that he does with his, with his uh, entourage at courtside. And, and I don't, I, I don't have a big problem with that as long as he would just get on with it himself and be a little bit more positive and compete in a more, in a more positive way. And, Right. And stop complaining all the time. It's also wasted energy too. It does yeah. become energy. So yeah. I hope he's going to grow out of this. We've seen, you know, we've seen some good majors from him now between Wimbledon last year and this one here. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, uh, I was disappointed in his attitude that day. I, I hope so because I love watching him play. And you know, the other thing I, you mentioned Zverev, and to me, that performance was just so lackluster and listless and. I mean, I mean, disheveled. I mean, here he's now played 26 majors and he's not, he's 0 and 11 against top 10 in, in majors. Yeah. And th- this is becoming a real problem now. He's 4 and 15 against the top 20. Um, yeah. and he's like 50% against the top 50. And this is a guy who's won everything there is in best of three. I mean, he's won two year end championships. He's, he's been, he's on a tear since Wimbledon of, Wimbledon of last year. So to, to see these performances again and again, and, you know, I don't think he'll get another chance to win a major in, until the U S open. So it's, 
this he's going to have to really wait and capitalize these next couple of years because there's a lot of other young players coming up and he, he just seems to just get really passive in these moments. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, I understand what you're saying with all the stats and his record against the top 10, et cetera. I would only say this. He's proven, as you also alluded to, that he can beat those guys. You know, look look at the year-end championships. He beats Djokovic and Medvedev back-to-back. He beat Novak in the Olympics. Right. You know, so many wins against top players elsewhere. And I don't think it's a question he doesn't have the fitness for best of five. I mean, it's mental. Unlucky, unlucky in a way against team in the U.S. Open final of 2020. He should have closed him out sooner. He had two sets to love, and then he served for the match in the fifth. So, and then... A little unlucky against Sitsipas at the French last year, coming from two sets down to take it into a fifth with an early break opportunity at the start. I think he had love forty. The yeah. start of the fifth, didn't take it. So I don't. I don't think it's a question that. I think once he starts beating the other top ten players in majors, he he could do it re- repeatedly. But mm-hmm. I what I don't understand is he says after the match here. Well, I really wasn't. I didn't play well today. I wasn't happy with how I played today, and I didn't play well the whole tournament. Well. Again, well, whose fault is that? And why didn't you do something about it? And and you you should have confidence to believe after everything you achieved in the second half of last year that this that you would have as good a chance as anybody to win this Australian Open. Yeah, and, so, and he he really likes to hype up his own chances too because he's always talking. I mean, he he said before the tournament this is sort of like a new big three between him and Medvedev yeah, and, and yeah. Djokovic, and it, it, I mean his results really back that up in the second half of twenty twenty one. So to see a perform to see him say that was a bit. Baffling. Well, I don't. I didn't mind him saying it, it, it as long as he does back it up. And right. my, puzzles me is why didn't he? And okay, it's tricky. Dennis is a left-hander. Dennis is a is a is a, a scintillating shot maker, and sometimes it's unnerving when he's when he's really on his game. But still, the game that Zara played when he served for the second set was just absolutely abysmal. Included two double faults. One of them a feeble double fault. One of them where he really went for it hard at one thirty-five down the tee. Uh, you kind of ba- a little bit of reverting back to the Sasha of the first half of last year. And uh, right. I thought to sort of solve those service woes. And I thought these mood swings were, were more under control. And, you know, he played to such a high standard. I, I I'm agreeing with you up to a point about the U S open. I do think as good as he is on clay that under certain circumstances, he's one of those guys actually that could be a threat to Rafa and Roland Garros. The question is, mm. will he beat anybody else? Right. And, Wimbledon, he he still doesn't believe on the grass. On the other hand, with a serve like that, I have to give him a, a I still give him a shot at Wimbledon, uh, Roland Garros and Wimbledon. And then we, we come back to the open. Maybe he surprises us, Vonch. Maybe suddenly Roland Garros, he, you know, when, when people are going to be playing down his chances, may, maybe he responds to that. But it certainly was disappointing to see this happen again in right. Melbourne. Right. Uh, another player I wanted to talk about was uh, was Berrettini because he became the first player in the 1990s to reach the quarterfinals of all all four majors or better, and he's now made semifinals or better in three of them. So you know, I, I really feel like he's really living up to the billing of a sort of a solid top between a top five and top ten player, and he's he beats everyone he really should be. I mean, the Alcaraz win was so impressive because especially the uh, especially the way Alcaraz was playing and coming back after losing the first two sets to finish him off the way he did. Uh, in that fifth set tiebreaker and not lose a single, not make a single unforced error. I thought he, I think he's extremely clutch. He has a big serve. He has a big forehand. Obviously there's some big limitations with the backhand and the, the movement. And, you know, Rafa really exposed those, those, those weaknesses in the semifinal, but 
I, I, I like the fact that he's getting there and he's, and you know, with the, on the, with the right, if the draw can open up in the right way, I mean, he definitely can get back to another final again, or, you know, keep reaching semis at, at this stage, but he's a little bit capped against the very, very best players. Like the, the Zverev, Medvedev, Djokovic, Tsitsipas, like all the players ahead of him. Yeah, I worry. I worry that he's going to get stuck in this sort of semifinal syndrome. Maybe an occasional final. I agree with you about the wins that he had. I thought it was a very uh, gutsy win to fend off Alcaraz in the end after the kid had come back at him so strong in the third and fourth sets. And I thought he also did a really nice job of that at the end to finish off Monfils, who was such a right. crowd. And get and Monfils had been at his best this whole tournament. So. Those are very good wins. I was very puzzled, though, by the, the way that he approached the first two sets against Rafa. Rafa was terrific. Rafa was hardly making an unforced error those first two sets. However, uh, uh, Berrettini just wasn't coming at him, wasn't blazing at him the way he he wasn't playing his kind of tennis. I mean, it's all about big serving and, and explosive forehands and try to try to just hang in there with the back end and keep the ball in play and wait for the opening off the forehand. But he was not exploding off his forehand until the third set. And then the serve wasn't that great either. But suddenly, from the middle of the third to the middle of the fourth, five love games in a row, at one stage, 23 points in a row right. in that set. And, and you thought maybe, you know, this could get really interesting. And suddenly, you know, at 3-4 in the fourth, he kind of tightened up a little bit. And Rafa, once again, made those kind of tantalizing, difficult returns that he's known to make as he, as he did against Medvedev. Some of those loop returns deep down the middle, high trajectory, daring uh, Berrettini to come up with a good. So it was a good professional performance from Rafa to fend him off there in the fourth. But there was that stretch from midway through the third into the middle of the fourth. And he had a couple of 1530s as well on Rafa's serve in the first and seventh game of the fourth set. That could have been a difference where he missed openings. But I'm not optimistic. And, And in terms of where he goes from here, yes, I think he can stay in that range of five to seven in the world for a long time. I mean, I think he's going to be a, certainly a regular occupant of the top 10 in the world, but I don't know about maybe just occasionally he gets to that, that final, he took advantage of his chances at Wimbledon and, you know, that, that was nice. And, but I, I, I worry, I, I do worry about him. And I, I, I hope that he can make strides off the back end, but it's not apparent to me that he will. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, uh, I think that he's pretty limited on that wing. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, and then another player that I really didn't have much expectations for, especially when I saw his draw and I, and obviously the tough six months he's had. I mean, with the arm problems, elbow problems, and just coming off of surgery. I mean, did, didn't even play his first match at the ATP Cup, and that's Stefano Tsitsipas. And uh, I, I mean, he didn't play so well in the first week. I mean, he lost a set to Pair, he lost a set to Baez, and then you know he had that five setter with Fritz. But then he really impressed me against Sinner. And you really start to think, okay, maybe there's a chance and this Medvedev match could get interesting. And it was it was a very good match for three sets. I, I mean, much better than their semi last year at, at the Australian Open. So now I'm, I feel really optimistic. And I, you know, I definitely think he's going to have a spectacular clay season. Yeah, I, I, I feel essentially the same way. Uh, I wish that he would resolve the problem of his father. His father's yeah. a great... His father is tremendously devoted to Stefanos and that, that part I like, I like the fact that how much they both care. I think they need to figure out a way here that we, that Stefanos doesn't have to keep dealing with the question. It's, it's what it's fine to say, Oh, well, but every, there's a lot of other coaching going on. I understand that, but that argument doesn't work very well. Yeah. I think you have to just worry about your own situation. And so I hope that he can get past that because I think his father is getting in his way by having Stefanos having to be warned for these coaching infractions. However, the rest of what you said couldn't be more true. He came from some pretty mediocre performances in all the matches you mentioned, including the Taylor Fritz match, the five setter. Mm. And that center match was just, it was magnificent. And it was the best he had played in a long, long time. And he carried it into the, you're right, for three sets. And to me, had he closed out the first set tiebreak, against Medvedev. That was another comeback, a tie-break comeback from Daniel. You've got to give him credit for doing it a few times in this tournament. Uh-huh. There, Rafa in the final. But if Tsitsipas wins that first set, I think we could have had a very different outcome. I think that was a critical set. And then I thought Medvedev played really well after he kind of imploded with the umpire there, too, complaining about Stefanos's father and the time and the coaching, all that stuff, and got just raging at the umpire. Then he settled down and played really well the rest of the way. And Stefanos, maybe because of all that he's gone through recently with the arm slash elbow, he he didn't have much left physically in the fourth, but I'm still very encouraged about what he'll do on the clay and really actually for the rest of the year period. I hope he'll become a better grass court player. I know he's great on hard courts. And Roland Garros was some of the best tennis of his career last year when he beat, beat Medvedev in the quarters and Zarev in the semis and, and had Novak down two sets to love. So I share your optimism about uh, Sitsipas in 2022. Yeah, the only thing I would add is that I I do feel like there's two kind of shots that are letting him down. And one is the return of serve. I really feel like against the best servers on a hard court, he just misses way too many returns, especially on the backhand side. I mean, he doesn't get enough returns in play. I mean, he won only 14 points on the return against Medvedev. And sure, he broke yeah. twice. But yeah. it wasn't much better last year either when he played Medvedev. I think Medvedev won 88% of his first serve points during yeah. the whole match. And it just seems like he's he's ca- kind of caught in the middle between he doesn't have a great block return. So he's having to take huge swings off of the off of his backhand. And he's not yeah, really willing I, to give up court position in order to do that. And I just feel like it's it, it, it it's it's better for him on the clay because he can hide that weakness a bit. But uh, something there I, I feel like needs to be addressed. And maybe your point about, um, you know, about his dad and the, and the coaching, maybe if they brought another outside coach in, I'm thinking someone like a, like a Mark Philippoussis, because I know he was saying on commentary that he's been helping. Um, he's been, he's known Steph and their family for a while. And he's sort of been helping and giving him tips on the slice backhand and the yeah. backhand. And I just feel like the, if he just makes those one or two small improvements, I mean, that could be the next step 
for him to really become world number one or win these hardcore titles. Yeah, I agree. Look, I mean, we've all seen this. You you diagnosed it well. I mean, we've all seen the issues issues he has on the return to serve. I would only say regarding those back in return that to me, it, it's not a difficult choice. The big swings are not going to work. The block return needs to be improved. And that would be the easiest solution to what has been an enduring problem. And I, I would sure I can't believe that whether it's Philip Pusas or somebody else, that that couldn't be fixed. Yeah. And once he gets to the point where he's getting more return, it'll make a big difference because he's really quite a good server. But he Phenomenal. needs to yeah. take some pressure off his serve and he needs to break more often than he does. And it has been a, a, a an ongoing issue for him for really over the last couple of years. Yeah, for sure. And the rest of the game is there. He has a great four-court game. That he is showing some more variety on the on the backhand wing and he's he's just so terrific to watch when he's in form. So... Yeah, no, he he transitions well. He's got nice technique on the volley. He really enjoy. I mean, look at the difference you alluded to to Medvedev earlier. Look at the difference between Tsitsipas's approach to coming up to the net and his technique. And and Daniel, no comparison. He's he's much happier up there. And so, yeah, he's the kind of guy you want to see succeed because he's a very he's once he gets that return, once he can improve that return, he, he'll be a, a very complete player. That's just the one element missing. Yeah, for sure. And I do also feel a little bit sorry for him in the past six months because I feel like the public perception of him has just been quite too harsh by many in the media or by, by some fans out there. I just I really feel like he caught a lot of grief for the all the bathroom break stuff. And it just it seems to have sort of got in his head a little bit at some points at the end of last year. And I just don't think that's quite fair because I don't think he's he's really like a villain like some some people kind of paint him out to be. Yeah, it's been harsh. Some of it he's brought on himself. I think some sure. of the bathroom longer than they should have been but then he did respond to that and uh, you know I, and he, he i think there's been some changes since and you're right i mean it, it just piled up in a way i mean because we had the Zarev incident in cincinnati and the complaint about his father it seems like a bunch of things happened to him in a short span and i also think by the way Vonch, that it really didn't help when andy murray laced into yeah. him open and then wouldn't stop like wouldn't the tweets stop. afterwards were were just too much I mean, that hurt because Andy at this stage is seen as one of the elder statesmen of the game. And it's not as if Andy's behavior has been so perfect. So I really find it a little bit hypocritical that Murray would be delivering these lectures, whether it, even though he, ha- he himself has so many commendable qualities. But he was way too hypercritical of, of uh, Sitsipas. And I think in a way that was a bit of sour grapes because he'd lost a frustrating match and he, he was annoyed with himself, and then he just really let Stefanos have it. Mm. And I thought that actually Sitsipas was very dignified about it. He didn't fire back, and he was very low-key about it. And I, hopefully over time, he's going to win people over and yeah. and be, be seen in a more positive light. For sure. Uh, yeah, the, the, the next pair that's really impressed me this year is Felix Ogeliasim. I mean, just... Just wow! Like he's made so many like technical improvements in his game, especially I mean during that off season. I really feel like and now the work with Uncle Tony, it's really paying off because we know he's a great athlete. We know he has a great serve, a nice forehand, but he's really setting him himself up with the forehand nicely. And he's now he he's really playing a much more measured game in my opinion. Like he's really he's 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 he knows when to sort of step back and defend and and when to sort of go after the ball. And he's following it up with nice shots at the net. I mean, the, the Medvedev match was was great. I mean, yeah, he was two sets to love up, but I feel like 
um, you know, there wasn't much he could really do on the match point. And Medvedev just came up with a really big serve. And, you know, he's, he's starting to, he's starting to really come into his own and hopefully that first title is coming. It's only a matter of time. Oh, no question. Listen, let's not forget, Bonch, that even after the disappointment of Medvedev hitting that service winner at four or five down in the fourth and holding on and winning the set, taking into a fifth, that Felix had six break points and he had to choose two 1540s on Daniel serve where Daniel really had to come up with some, something special and did. But I just think to compare that performance to what he did against the same player at the U.S. Open and the ATP Cup. Yeah. I mean, he should be very proud of that because I remember, you know, a, a lot of people, I, 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 I was inclined to think it was going to be a clear-cut win from Medvedev going in based on having watched those two matches. And, and I think that Felix would return so much better in this match than he did in the other two. Mm-hmm. And that's got to be very encouraging to him. And he doesn't have to feel like he lost it. And it was Medvedev won that match and, and Felix didn't toss it away. And yes, I agree with you. The, the, the idea that he hasn't won a title, you know, it wouldn't shock me if his first title just happened to be a major. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it definitely could happen. And you have, you have to think like he's definitely going to be in the he's definitely going to be in the latter stages of 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 all the majors. He's so good on grass uh, at Wimbledon, and he's going to definitely like his chances everywhere. You know, you'd hope the French Open results would get better, but that's only a matter of time as well. Yeah, that'll happen. But certainly on the faster courts. And listen, he's he is such a an exhilarating player to watch because you know he has he's he's got really the whole package and the movement and, and great ground strokes of which are becoming more dependable and and and, and a very good volleyer and a terrific serve. He's got he's got it all. And I think now it's about shot selection. It's about a match playing acumen, and he's getting there fast. And he's just such an an enormously appealing young man you know his demeanor out there his ability to smile at himself but keep competing uh with for sort of quiet ferocity it's it's impressive he's a very impressive young man and i mm-hmm. think he's going to be great for the game and and the, the titles will they they will they will be coming yeah for sure and and perhaps maybe that was a, 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 one of the other factors too but medvedev playing this really long match i mean he's not really played a lot of five setters in his career you know, I was looking at I was looking at his record, and he's three and eight in five setters, and this was probably his most impressive five set win. Da- Daniel. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, let's let's forget at what time he what was he zero and four, zero and five, zero and six. You know, he's been improving. He's been improving in the five setters, but I also think I, I'm a little I'm a little puzzled. When, I don't know how much it was mental in the final, but obviously Rod Rapa looked fresher physically as that match went on. Daniel talked in the press conference. He said later how he really wanted to wear him down a little, but it, instead he was the one that got worn down. So yeah. I'm just I'm just wondering a bit about the fitness level. Well, that's part of the problem in some in these five setters, and I don't understand it. I'm sure he trains hard, but maybe that he may, needs to make some adjustments in his training regimen so that you know he's a bit fitter than he is now. I, I agree. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, for sure. And then. Yeah, I mean, any any other players that really stood out to you on the men's side? I thought Maxime Cressy, he was, he was sort of fun to watch, you know, serve and volleying. The revelation. The revelation. I mean, obviously, we saw him lose that final to Rafa in, in Melbourne, and that was nice. And we saw what great stuff he played last year at the U.S. Open. He's electrifying because he doesn't compromise. He keeps coming at you. He's such a contrast to everybody else out there. 
played that fine match against Medvedev and Medvedev didn't exactly do himself proud with some of the remarks and the mocking comments and, hmm. oh, this guy's so lucky. It wasn't lucky. To me, he risks, he's willing to risk clusters of double faults here and there so as to be sure that he gets enough on that second serve that he can keep coming in behind it, serving and volleying relentlessly. And it's well worth the trade-off of, of having some double faults. And I like the way he volleys, and I just feel like it's got to be unnerving. Nobody enjoys having to deal with a guy that's going to be barreling in on you all the time in today's game. They're just not used to it. And he's quick enough up there so that, I mean, we're not really dealing with a Karlovich. I think this this guy is really – it's going to be fascinating to watch him over the next couple of years as, as he gets more experience. And he's showing – played that, a decent final against Rafa, played a really good match against Medvedev. And I feel like, uh, you know, he, he's going to continue to be a factor this year. Yeah, for sure. I would love to see him in, at Wimbledon, see how he does there. It's going yeah, to be- to watch him at Wimbledon no doubt about it you know and watch him play any any of the top guys and he's he's not afraid of anyone that's that's really apparent mm-hmm. yeah for sure and just another thing on Medved I mean what did you make of his comments uh, sort of after the final where he was talking about a, you know a child with a dream and uh, talking about not playing uh, past the age of 30 and just you know some of the some of the things he was saying about the crowd, I, I did feel a little, what part of me felt a little bit sorry for him because I don't know what it's sort of like to play with the crowd against you. I mean, we've seen Djokovic many times sort of use that as fuel and to his advantage, but I don't think that means he really relishes it or enjoys it. I think, I think it's, you sort of have to in that position, you'd much rather have the crowd with you, but, um, but in the, and, and it must not have been nice also to have heard some, some xenophobic comments from the crowd, like saying, go back to Russia and things like that. Uh-huh. So maybe I don't know if that's what, what he was referring to. And some of it, I guess, was also heat in the moment. But I also think you reap what you sow. And I think some of the some of his behavior during this fortnight, I mean, he really sort of brought this on himself in some ways, um, especially, you know, with the rant that he had against with the, with the umpire. Um, you know, I, I just I don't really approve of the way he treats umpires. I, I wish that's something, you know, he definitely gets better because I really like him as a character. I think he's got a great personality. I think he's, uh, you know, I think he, he goes about it as... His, his own way and in in some ways he relishes the villain type role and I, I think it's good for the game to have different kind of personalities and you know not always be politically correct on everything so yeah I mean I agree with essentially everything you've said I, I I felt like that the that was a very bizarre spiel that he went on to start sure. the press conference basically announced that you've got something to say and fair enough but mm-hmm. it was was it was really kind of a rambling I wouldn't say incoherent, but he was rambling and it was too much pity. And even if he had said, if he just would have clarified and said, listen, I want you to know something. It's, it's not easy being out. I just like to say in my opening remarks that uh, there, there were some xenophobic comments made toward me that I really resented and that it was very hurtful. Yeah. And, and I, and I, it, 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 I don't want to say, I don't want to make this just one big excuse, but it really did affect my morale and, and, and it's a lousy feeling to be uh, to have fans treat you in that fashion. Said something along those lines. I think would be more so. But the, the way that he approached it was, as you said, you know, talking about how he might be gone by thirty. He talked about how he might play a hardcore tournament yeah. around the Roland Garros or Wimbledon. And the the, the 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 inference being, you know, that only in Russia do they appreciate him. I don't think that's true. I think the crowd in New York was really hoping for Djokovic to win the Grand Slam, but they were very appreciative of his play and they gave him, I think that actually the open crowds treated him quite well the whole fortnight. And I don't think it's, oh, he's always been 
the villain out there. And he just, I think this was partially, he was just so disappointed to lose that match from two sets up that he was, he was venting and I get it, but you're right where you're also right is there was a lot of very uh, uh, contentious, unnecessarily uh, unnecessary behavior throughout the tournament, you know, and the, the railing into these umpires and complaining and saying, listen to me, I'm talking to you, listen to me. It was out of control at times. And then he kind of, he, what's the charming part is that then he does the post-match interview and pretty much admits that he was yeah. wrong and that he shouldn't have done it. And there was a mistake, but he goes out and does it again. Exactly. And he certainly should have understood that this crowd under these circumstances, Rafa being the, the man that he is and one of the most, um, popular players the game has seen over these uh, over these last 15 years to, to the, just try to understand that and just try to quiet them the way he did in the first two sets. That's the way to handle it. So I, I think maybe the fact that he was so disappointed in himself, he's taking it out on others. I hope that Kafelnikov I saw made some comment about he'll get over it in 10 days. I hope Yevgeny is right hmm. and that Daniel calms down and, and moves on from here and 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 start and and starts contending hard for the remaining majors this year. It will be tough for him, though, as you alluded to with Sasha. You're not you. You felt you seem to believe that Sasha. We may not see it from him until the Open. Well, Daniels got that not a good record in Roland Garros, despite making the quarters last year for the first time. He had never won a match before then there. And then Wimbledon has been tricky for him too. Although you'd think with his serve, he could do well there. Oh. So uh, I, I I just I hope he pulls himself together emotionally because he really does have a lot to offer. And he's a very amusing guy and, and very bright and honest. He speaks so candidly in these matches, but I, he's got to find a way to sort of deal with this restlessness and this this kind of, um, you know, sometimes immaturity in the way that he uh, the way he expresses himself, especially with with the umpires because it's, it's a different guy that comes in and speaks so reasonably in most of the press conferences after the final being an exception. Most of his press conferences, he's rather, he's quite entertaining and, and I love very his press conferences. Yeah, they're great. They're great. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You would hope so because I, I, I do think like he, he definitely can win up to three or four more hardcore majors. I, I don't oh. think so. And I think he can he can improve on the other courts. It wouldn't shock me if he got a Wimbledon somewhere along the line, and you know maybe he can, and he and he could improve on clay. There's no reason, but certainly every year in Australia and, and uh, New York, he should be a very strong contender. And you just hope that he'll he'll kind of rediscover the joy of playing the game because this was a very arduous fortnight for him. He had his moments of play. You know, it was tough. Kyrgios match was hard. He faced a, certainly a harsh crowd there, but he dealt with that. And then, you know, the Felix match and the comeback and winning in five and then having to get all, then all the angst that he showed in this Tsitsipas match with the umpire. So there was, and then of course, culminating with the final. So I think maybe everything did catch up to him in the final. He'd had so many emotional, uh, emotional moments across the fortnight. And finally at the end, uh, he didn't seem to have much energy left. Yeah, definitely. Pretty pretty good summation there. Um, yeah, lastly, just on the men's side, the last thing I just sort of wanted to touch on because, I mean, how can you not? It's a big storyline, which is the whole 
the whole Djokovic saga. I mean, obviously, I don't want to go through the whole thing. And, you know, a lot of it is very, it's, it unfortunately became very political. And we, we kind of already know the whole turn of events since it lasted for, for about 10 days, like between Djokovic's Instagram post up until the very eve of the tournament. But just to sort of put a bow on the whole thing, I mean, firstly, I guess before we talk about the, the before we talk about how it was resolved at the end, I, do you think this will change anything for Djokovic? Do you think this will motivate him now that Nadal's gotten the 21st major? I mean, does he really now, do you, do you really think he sort of changes his mind? Because, you know, three years ago, he did, it did hurt for him, but he got the surgery and, and he did it. He went under, he went under the table, he got it. And, you know, now with, with this on the line, this is a very crucial year for, for Djokovic. And we already know that he's not going to be able to play all those majors left in the year without getting the vaccine. So do you think this will change his mind? I, I hope so. I hope it, and I hope it won't be just because Rafa went ahead of him in the Grand Slam title race, but that he'll also say, look, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 35. You know, I, I, I've got some, some, I'm a young 35, but th- this, th- these are crucial times for me. And I've got to cash in now. This, this, this is still my prime. I, I'm not going to be around in the upper echelons forever. Right. And I've worked so hard to get where I am. And then he'll also realize the one thing I think he doesn't realize, I think it's very genuine, is when he says it's a personal decision, not understanding that this is a tricky thing with this with COVID, because, you know, if you don't get the virus, you can you, you're more vulnerable to getting it. It maybe prolongs the pandemic in some ways, not him personally, but the the, the numbers of people that don't get the, the vaccine. I, I hope he'll change his outlook on it. But whatever whatever his outlook is, I just hope for even just for pragmatic reasons that he'll say to himself, I've got to do this. I did. You alluded to the elbow procedure. That that cost that was an emotional ordeal for him, and he said later that he was in tears over that. He didn't want to do that, but obviously, why did he do it? Because he wanted to compete and win majors, and there was going to be no other way without doing this. Things were really in a, a terrible state for him in the early stages of 2018. He was losing to players that normally wouldn't touch him, and everything did turn. And he won Wimbledon in the Open that year, but wouldn't have happened without the surgery, uh, without the procedure. So. I hope he looks at this the same way, Vanch, and I hope he'll say to himself, you know what, I hate this, but I'm going to do it because I can't go through it, this anymore. And, and as much as I may believe that it's, I don't want to put it into my body, I'm not, I'm not going to be, I, I could potentially be out of Roland Garros, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open and barely able to play any tournaments outside of Dubai. And so th- that could be crushing and it also could just set him back in terms of any t- type of comeback next year. I, I hope he'll do that. And I think I think people will be understanding and sympathetic uh, and, and because this was, as you said, there was a political component here for sure. Yeah. And one thing I think should never have happened, what I feel most strongly about is there should have been this coordination between Tennis Australia, Victorian government and the federal government so that there's no way that he just gets the news. And we got the news, too. Everybody knew it. And then he responded with his post. But once you're being told by Craig Tiley and Tennis Australia, you, you're, you're in, we've given you an exemption, you shouldn't be stopped at the border and told, no, no, you're not in. They should have, they should have gotten their signal straight, and then, in which case, Tiley could have said to Novak, we tried and we've con- contacted the government, we were prepared to give you the exemption, but it looks very bleak as far as them letting you in. You might be able to try to go to court over this, but it's going to turn into a terrible ordeal. And, and I don't, 
whatever he wanted to say. I wish something like that. Because all I'm saying is, imagine if Djokovic does not go. And the announcement was simply that that he had not been given the exemption, that the government was not going to change their policy on vaccines, and therefore he wasn't going to play. And that he had issued a statement along the lines, I'm very disappointed, but I haven't taken the vaccine. I'm still thinking about this, but I my personal choice so far has been not to take it. I accept their ruling. There would have been some mild criticism, but it would have been nothing like what we got because of him having 10, 11 days and the back and forth with the court and the judges and originally him being cleared again to go out and start practicing and play. And then the minister steps up again and says, no, and we go back to court again. So I'm just saying, I I, I had a lot of sympathy for him. I just wish he would stay. My hope is that he changes his stance for his own good. Uh, it, it, it's it's to everybody's benefit, but particularly for him to just be able to get back out there and play again, because without it, I, 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 I'm very worried that we, we wouldn't see him. I don't think that there's going to be any kind of a gray area when it comes to yeah. Wimbledon Open or Paris. I think it's going to be very, I think they saw what happened here and, and none of the other governments are going to want to go through that kind of thing. And I think the federations are going to, are going to see it the same way, you know, yeah. and, in, in France, Great Britain and the U.S. And that, so it's a tough choice for Novak. I don't know. I mean, I, I know some of my colleagues believe that he will inevitably get it. I'm not sure whether he will. I just hope that he will. Yeah, for sure. I don't know either. But like the thing is that you you mentioned the loophole. Um, I, I think that was one of the problems here is because you had Renata Boracova. She was already yeah. there. She was playing t- tennis. She was playing matches. Yeah. And then she was forced to... her. To her clothes were stripped, and she was forced to leave the country. Cost her a lot of money, and then, and then she was gone. And the other, there was another um, official or lineswoman or someone who was also let in. And then yeah. they just—it seemed like at the end it was just purely based on anti-vax sentiment within the nation, and that was sort of their reason in the final trial. And it didn't seem like there was anything more beyond uh, beyond that at that at that point. And then we also don't have really have an explanation from Craig Tiley in all of this, which is what really no. you know because. Also, That's Rafa, if you notice, after he won the match, uh, after he hugged Medvedev at the net, the first thing he did was hug Craig Tiley. All the players yeah. in the trophy ceremonies were complimentary of Tiley, and there was not any. There was no questions asked of Craig Tiley during the whole thing about the whole exemption process, how it worked. I mean, there were those guidelines of like the, the, you had to have COVID um, in the, within the past six months. I mean, there's so much that needs to be explained. The, the, the December 10th deadline, and then you know why was. Why was Djokovic allowed in if he tested positive on the 16th? And then you have all the right. events afterwards. And listen, he could, you're, you're bringing up very uh, important points. He, everybody wants to put the blame on Novak, but yes, it was up to Tylee. If, if he had, if he had rules, if they had rules for the tournament that were December 10th, then, then just stand by it. Say, Novak, I'm really sorry. You just missed the deadline. God, we would have loved to have helped you. We really would have liked to have accommodated you, but we can't. He has not answered anything. In fact, they put out a statement, Tennis Australia, patting themselves on the back and saying nothing. It had all been handled beautifully well, and they never even mentioned Novak's name. Right. I thought that was very unfair, and I was I was a bit surprised by the by Daniel and and Rafa being going out of their way that much for uh, Tylee as well. Yes, mm-hmm. he, he must answer. The surprising thing to me is that as we speak, the tournament's been over now for several days. And we still haven't heard anything from Craig Tiley. Where Where's the media in Australia? They should want to hear from him. Yeah. Want to hear from him because he played a central role in this entire episode. 
because yeah. he's the one that gave Djokovic the green light. And what surprised me was I had people that I know, longtime friends and media colleagues, and and they were critical of Djokovic from the outset. And I'm saying, wait a minute, would he really fly over there? He's been told that he got an exemption. He's not just flying over there trying to barge into the country and try to. And it was also to me, it was not an ego. It was not an ego thing either. It was just his unconventional beliefs on the vaccine, which I wish he didn't have. But it, I never felt there was Novak saying, I'm Novak Djokovic. I'm number one in the world. I've won this tournament nine times. You owe it to me to let me in your country. Give me a break because I am who I am. I'm 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 the great Novak Djokovic. No. Yeah. I, I to your point, I, I I did see that from Vasek Pashpil when he made that point very clearly in a tweet that like Djokovic wouldn't have come on the plane if he was told that you know you're, you don't have a valid exemption. Um, yeah. So no, I, yeah, but I, inexplicably overlooked in so much of the coverage and the criticism of Djokovic, nobody seemed to bring that up, and there there was mild criticism of Tylee, but yeah. only mild. And and the fact is, he opened the door, and he clearly wanted Novak to play. And then once it happens, they just sort of right. th- th- there's nothing more said. He, I felt that he really did an injustice to Djokovic by not speaking up and at least saying. And he should have after the tournament. Okay, if he didn't want to go on about it because the tournament was about to start, I think as soon as it was over, and somewhere in the last couple of days, we should have had a statement. And he mm-hmm. should be coming to Djokovic's defense in the sense of saying, "Look." I can't explain all the things that went on and with the form or, or the Novak. And, and again, it was poor judgment of Novak and he admitted it to go and meet with the Lakeith reporter. But is, but does that alone disqualify? Does that mean you now to say, okay, we don't like the fact that he met with a reporter. And, and again, it gets back to your political point. So are you going to make the judgment that because he did that, he doesn't belong in this country? Plus, the other point, Vanch, is he was never an anti-vaxxer. He was just yeah. one who was believed that it was your personal decision and his it was his decision. But he never went on a crusade urging sure. people not to take the vaccine. Had he done that, there might have been other players who would have followed suit. So that 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 never added up either. I do think he came under really excessively harsh criticism. Yes, he brought some things down on himself with some of the things that happened regarding the forum and 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 that visit with the French reporter and the and the kind of but the bottom line is he was scrutinized in, in in you know very very harshly in the end and I hope that he will speak soon Avanch I saw a statement out of Serbia today he met with their president and he thanked him and said he his he will tell his version soon and I hope he does and I hope then that that will also force a Craig Tiley. To, to to make us to, to comment once once Novak has has done it on his side because then people can weigh the entire episode and have it a bit more in perspective but I, I did I, it did surprise me throughout the whole thing how the, the, the entire focus was on him and not on the people not on tennis Australian Victorian government who apparently as you know had a couple of panels reviewing it yeah. it was two expert panels that looked over it supposedly blindly and you mentioned the other uh, the woman player coming over to play the doubles. I mean, yes, she was yanked out of there after yeah. Novak arrived. So what was that all about? That appeared to be a reaction to the fact that they were now holding Novak in detention at the detention hotel. And they right. made, they thought they were going to look bad by allowing her to continue to play 
But that that's a strange decision too. Why was she let in in the first place? If your policy was that you weren't, you know, why wasn't she immediately sent to the initially told, oh, we're going to have to send you to this hotel and you can appeal this, but we're not letting you in. That has never been answered either. Right, for sure. And then, I mean, just to, just another question I really had is that, do you really feel like, because it's now, you know, on Djokovic's part, so, so the so the first thing is you mentioned the you know you mentioned that he's not an, an anti-vaxxer and he's he sort of just believes it's sort of a belief that he has about himself. But isn't it? I do think it would help if he clarified that again, you know, himself because you know especially with the yeah. protests and yeah. everything that happened in Australia, it is unfortunate. But he's kind of made out to be like this political martyr and like face for like anti-vax sentiment when that's really not at all what he believes in. I mean, not at all. Because I mean, he, if you remember in Belgrade, he offered vaccines to players and yeah. uh, staff, and so it's not like he and he donated millions of dollars in Serbia, Spain, and all around the world, you know, to help uh, uh, to help doctors and stuff and during COVID nineteen and twenty twenty. So yeah, he's definitely not anti vax. No, and you're right. He he absolutely should he should clarify that and all the rest because the only yeah. thing we really heard from him was was when he made that one, you know, in between the two court cases when he when he talked about what, what he did with the French reporter and, and a, sort of apologized for that and explained the dates of the COVID and the, the events that he'd attended. Just he addressed a few specific points then, yeah. but not the entire thing. And certainly we need to hear from him about what he was told initially right. that, that led him to go over there, what what they were telling him regard because he he obviously and that, that was I think that it would was, also help. Sorry to interrupt you, but I think it would also help if he had a better, if he had advisors around him that really held him accountable, because I really feel like also, you know, sometimes, and, and, you know, I understand their point and he scrutinized a lot, but I feel like the team around him is, it's more sort of like us against the world. And it's sort of like, it's become a little bit too much sort of like victim mentality. I mean that in a good way, because I feel like he, he sort of, he sort of has many you know, self goal, self own goals in a way, like, you know, he sort of shoots himself in the foot in places where I feel like, you know, Federer and Nadal wouldn't in that instance. So, yes, you're right. I, it's the people around him. I have to say this. I think that's really more his parents. That his parents are fiercely loyal to him, and his father makes yeah. these uh, comparisons to Jesus Christ and says some things that are a little bit wacky. I think uh, yeah. that's not doing a service to his son. But I do think that the people like Marion Vida and Goran Ivanisevic. They're the ones that can really help sort help him sort through this, and and because obviously, uh, even they were, you know, we saw Goran over there. I mean, he's clearly had the vaccine. Yeah, he's had it. So, so you know, and and Novak knows that, and he and maybe he didn't love taking it either. I don't know how he felt, what his feelings were, but he just was very practical, obviously. And I I would think Goran is one of these guys, he speaks his mind so freely and he has this good relationship with Djokovic where they can really get in each other's faces, so to speak. And I would hope that Goran would be the one to say, look, we all know what's happened, Novak. This was so sad. And, you know, that might have been your 21st major and not Rafa's. And we know what happened, but we've got to look forward here to the rest of the year. And I'm just asking you to please reconsider on this. And 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 just get the vaccine for your for your sake. Just do it for your sake so that you can then just clear your head and get back to playing tennis because you were on a roll last year. And even though you lost in New York, you had one of the great years of the of the open era. I mean, you you 
you won the first three, you got to the final, the fourth, it was one of your, your greatest seasons ever. And you got yourself up to 20 and you want to keep going. And here you are having missed the first major of the year. We, we've got to get you back out there. I could hear Gorin saying that to him. And so I, that's my hope that somebody Gorin and Vida as well. And they convince him for logical reasons, you know, why he has to do this. And that, and then he, and then he, and then he does it. And that would be, I think that would be a relief to all of us, but I do think you're going to get some clarity from him. I do think in time here, when he's ready to make his, when he's ready to address this in a, in a kind of a comprehensive way, as you say, it gets back to when we started this discussion. Now he doesn't have to go through the entire blow by blow account, but certainly the business of getting into the country and having been so excited. And the other thing I thought was again, a little unfair to him is he issued that he put that social media post out about going over there and I'm heading over and, and and everybody took that as sort of as if he was trying to defiantly. Yeah. That, I didn't see that. I saw it as, as somebody who was like excited that he'd gotten the exemption and relieved. And it was like, well, I'm going over to play the Australian open. Happy new year to everybody. And is, let's go 2022. It looked to me like a very positive kind of statement caught a lot of flack for that. But I do think, in the weeks Just ahead. on that point, I, I do wonder though what would have happened in an alternate timeline had he not used the word exemption permission. Just just wondering how that might have played out because in people's heads, I mean, you know, maybe maybe that played a role at the very end in terms of could that. be. But again, I didn't have a problem with exemption permission because it was he was saying they gave me the I have permission now. They gave me an right. exemption. Who's to say? We'll never know. But I, that was definitely taken in the wrong light by a lot of I agree, people. No. And uh, listen, he has to move on, and it's a crucial phase. And think about it this way, Vance, just in terms of the tennis, he last, play, last played in Davis Cup. Yeah. Times, time, time is 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 moving on, and he needs to. Granted, he's going to have he's he's, he's going to play Dubai later in the month, but he needs a lot more than Dubai, yeah. and and otherwise, it's going to be impossible to compete on the level that he would like, and. So again, it gets back to Ivanisevich, Divida, a few people like that, you know, non-family members, because I think they're so fiercely loyal, you know, when it comes to his brother or his parents. And I, I understand where they're coming from. They're very proud of him and they should be. But he needs someone that will, to borrow the old phrase, will tell it like it is. And mm. I think that, that that's where Vida and Ivanisevich can be so uh, so so valuable. They can play such a crucial role in helping to to him to to reach that decision and make the right decision which would be of course to take the vaccine for sure and yeah steve you've been so generous with your time i did however want to just if really quickly in five minutes if we can go through uh ashley barty because her triumph was absolutely unreal uh you know winning losing just 30 games and route to the title i feel like it was the most impressive by far of her of her three major runs and it was just a really nice to see like this popular champion finally win at home and doing it the way she's, she's done. I mean, with her slice and her forehand and her serve is one of the most, is one of the best in women's tennis I've seen in a long, long time. And it was just spectacular to watch her beat four uh, power players in a row like that. And, and, you know, especially because Collins really gave her problems in that second set. And she definitely, rather than letting that second set go and focusing on the third set, she really stepped up in big, in the crunch and she handled the occasion very well. So that to me was that to me was the central point. Uh, you know, she she had waltzed through the tournament all the way through the first set of the final against Collins, 
So we thought maybe she wins this tournament without dropping a set and we'd start comparing her to Steffi Graf and fewest games lost. And and suddenly Collins goes on that surge to go up 5-1. And I, I would have, if I'm in her shoes, I'm thinking I can't win this set. That's not mm-hmm. the way Danielle is playing, but I thought she did a terrific job to get that. She gets that first break back and then just started playing every point. And then the second time Collins served her, she had 30 love and Ash still broke her. And I thought, you know what? That, that that was really that was very smart on her part and, and very alert to, to saying so no I'm not giving up on this set yeah I, I, I you know she could have just started thinking I'm going to start serving the third and forget this set uh, let's move on and she didn't and suddenly from one five down it was five all and the next thing you know they were in a tie break and she really outplayed Danielle in the tie breaks I thought it was very impressive as you said that serve is terrific it's about it's it's it, the precision of that serve is remarkable and that's the key to it all deceptive. And she really can find the corners with it and move it around and you don't know where she's going. And it's, it's not a, it's not a, it, it's not such a big serve as like a Naomi Osaka, but it's really deadly accurate. And then I just feel the way she moves around and hits those forehand returns from the deuce court off second serves is down the line. is just a great shot and the mixture on the backhand the combination of the slice and the drive. No, she's in a position now, Vonch, to really start, uh, at, at, you know, putting a lot of majors into her victory column because now she's won three of the four. I think inevitably she'll get the U.S. Open. Apparently not happy about the balls there. I've heard a lot of talk about that. She, I think she'll get past that. And she just didn't play a good match against Shelby Rogers last year. So yeah. be it. it. She'll get that one. And she should start getting uh, – duplicates everywhere else so i see her with these next three four years could be spectacular for her uh if she maintains the same motivation and she could she could really establish herself as the preeminent player in women's tennis over the span my hope is that we're going to get a big rivalry with her in osaka osaka lost to anna samova after having two match points but no disgrace she played a pretty decent match and i feel like her reaction the biggest the most uh the the most positive thing about it was how Naomi reacted afterwards. There were no tears and she was happy with, pretty happy with how she played and very, uh, you know, she took it not in stride, she did, but she took it well. So I feel like she's on her way back emotionally and this is going to be a much better year for her than last year was post Australia. And so I would love to see those two start playing so big. We could have had a round of 16 match with them there. It didn't happen, but I do believe that, the potential is there for them to meet in in one or two uh, finals. But if the if the draw falls the right way, and maybe we could see a major final or two between these two before the year is out. Yeah, I would absolutely love that because they haven't played each other since 2019 in Beijing, and so it's too long. Too long. It's it's gone way too long, and of course now Osaka yeah. is going to be 85 in the world, so it'll be interesting to see how the draws kind of shape up shape out. But no, I, I completely agree. I think that rivalry would be absolutely terrific. Well, I- and Naomi is on her way. Yeah, I also think, Vance, uh, that the ranking, the ranking dipping like that will encourage Naomi to play more. Yeah, and it won't, it won't be that hard for yeah, a couple of tricky draws along the way, but she could get in the back in the top twenty pretty quickly. Yeah, for sure. All right, Steve, this has been amazing. Uh, you know, it was quite a hectic one month of tennis, but nonetheless, I think there's a lot of terrific storylines and a lot of uh, a lot of great things ahead in 2022 and in pro tennis and I think it just goes to show that even without as great and awesome as that Novak Djokovic is and 
we, and he was, wasn't in the tournament. I think this tournament really delivered in the standard and quality of matches, and we had so much to talk about. So, yeah, yeah we did. No, it was terrific. It was, it was great fun to review it, and I, I look forward, Vaj, to maybe having another one of these sessions post-Roland Garros. For sure. I look forward to it as well, and let's keep in touch. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you, Vaj. I enjoyed it. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.